Namo tassa bhagavato arato samma samputasa Namo tassa bhagavato arato samma samputasa Namo tassa bhagavato Arato Samma Sambuddhasa Udang Dhammang Sankhang Namasami So some of you folks may know that I am in the midst of offering a course for Dhamma teachers, a six-month course. And this month, um, our theme is about the five khandhas and the Buddha teaching in terms of using categories. So I want to say a little bit about that uh, to you all in a slightly different context or perhaps from a different angle. But um, hopefully it will be useful. And the khandas, as they're called in Pali, or the skandhas in Sanskrit, are uh, one of my favorite Dhamma topics, something I like to return to again and again. In part because I think that there is just such a subtlety to that teaching. There are so many layers of meaning and understanding that can come from practicing with the khandhas. So I'm just uh, going to share a little bit today about that. And perhaps just also start by saying that, you know, the we have, especially early Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, is known for many lists, right? There's five of these and four of that and three of the other and eight of those. <laughs> And, um, and I think of that as being, you know, having been a very handy sort of device for folks who were memorizing the teaching, who were carrying the teaching orally as it was transmitted for, you know, centuries, uh, both during the Buddhist time and then centuries after, uh, before anything was starting to get written down. But I also think about it in terms of um, the Buddha or the, the, all the teachers really who have worked with these uh, frameworks as giving us examples of where to place our attention, what aspects of experience to focus on so that we can begin to unpack a little bit of what's happening, right? Rather than this kind of tumbly, racing, or um, various ways that we experience the mind as being hard to get a hold of. You can just look at particular facets of the jewel, if you will, and looking through a particular facet will give you a different view, a different perspective on how it works or what the whole might actually be. Right? So that's one also aspect of mind 
that uh, is quite interesting that the Dhamma is telling us that there are many, many aspects to the whole of mind and um, that we can begin to uh, relate, understand how they relate to each other and how they relate to the body and how all of that is relating to the environment around us and what we experience. So we're going to look at the khandhas. I'm going to look at the khandhas today as uh, this, this way of perceiving causality, perceiving patterns, and, um, and sort of breaking down the experience, not deconstructing it in the way of, um, of uh, sort of smashing it to parts, which is one of the ways that many people experience the teachings of emptiness, like just smashing it all down to phenomena, but rather breaking it into um, uh, a perceivable mechanism, if you will. Okay, so that's that's sort of the goal that I have for tonight is to look at that. So what are the khandhas? So one, um, there are many, many suttas. In fact, uh, there's a whole section in the connected discourses. There is a whole chapter on the khandhas. So easily, I would say more than 200 or so suttas just in that chapter. And then the khandhas are also mentioned in various other suttas outside that chapter. So it's something that the Buddha spoke about quite a bit. And it's something that we also see in later Buddhist traditions that are spoken about quite a bit. So just to throw out an example, in, in Zen tradition, one of the key teachings is the Heart Sutra. And the Heart Sutra begins with an exposition about the emptiness of the five khandhas. The first few lines of the Heart Sutra, that's what it's about. So the khandhas are five, as I've said. So rupa, rupa, I'm going to give you the Pali words just in, in case that's fun. <laughs> rupa, which is form. And um, form is usually defined as the four elements. So earth, uh, water, fire, and air. And sometimes on Wednesday mornings when we're, I'm doing the mindfulness of body, Meditations, we'll do a meditation on those four elements. And it's part of uh, the teachings of mindfulness of body and the satipatthana, right? The four foundations or, or um, establishments of mindfulness. So form, and then vedana, which is feeling tone. And sort of the, the basic, yeah, tone is a good word for it. The, the sort of valence that any particular contact has for us. And then sanya means perception, the way that we label the world, the way that we identify something that we come into contact with. Again, whether it's a bodily contact or mental contact, there is a, a, a process of identification uh, or categorization, you might say. And then sankara. Sankara is a pretty complicated word, really, but the way that it's used in this framework, you could most, I would say, probably most beneficial to think of it as volitional formations, volitional thought, mental formations, 
It's something like our responses, our reactions, our um, things that we do or stories that we tell about what we experience, about the contacts that we have. And then vinyana. Vinyana means consciousness. And there are many fairly complex teachings around what consciousness might mean and all of that. But in this case, it means both the, the basic awareness that of a sense door or that a contact has happened um, and uh, also the um, particular, like a bump within, you can think about it as being like, if consciousness is, uh, were like a lake or an ocean, then particular moments of experience, of contact, would be like little waves or little bumps, right? Or sometimes, I, I'm, the other metaphor that you see is, um, if consciousness were like a field, literally like a big piece of land, then individual little bits of clover, that would be moments of like eye consciousness or ear consciousness or mind consciousness, right? Depending on what door it came to, the contact came through. And so, so the particular sutta that I want to talk about a little bit today is this, is this sutta called Being Devoured. It's a very intense kind of um, uh, simile or, or metaphor for what's happening when we experience the khandhas. But in that sutta, the, the Buddha says what each of these things are. So he says, like form, he says, it's, it's called form because it is deformed, is the way that it's sometimes translated. Or you could say, it is deforming, it is falling apart, it is always a thing which is, um, which is either shaped or it's unshaping itself, so to speak. So that's form. And then feeling tone, you know, has this, it's a kind of a range between pleasant, unpleasant, and sort of uh, indifferent in the middle there. And uh, perception, he said, per what perception is what perceives, and it perceives yellow, or it perceives green, or it perceives a different color. And I thought, oh, that's quite interesting, right? Because perception of a color, so a, uh, a color doesn't inherently have a word with it right? That's something that we put on there. That's something that is a concept in a sense. So if you look at one color, somebody might say that that color is brick, and the other person might say that color is rust, and the other person might say that color is red, and the other person might say that color is orange, and the other person might say that color is cinnamon. This happened to me recently. I was, I was looking for, uh, to help somebody who wanted to buy some robe cloth. And so then we you know, ordered up some samples. She ordered up some samples online for some fabrics. And I, thought, I saw the, fix, the photo online and there was one called cinnamon that looked like it would be about right. And then they sent it, it was like, this is not cinnamon. <laughs> this is not terracotta. What is that name? 
have to do with this color of this fabric, right? So, so you see what I'm saying, that, the, that this, this uh, perception has this conceptual aspect to it that will become important. Right? It becomes very important. Because the feeling tone is happening before any kind of verbal. Feeling tone is sort of uh, much more primitive and much more immediate and spontaneous. But when we get to perception, then we've moved into a part of the mental experience that is related to memory and is a little bit more, um, we might say, malleable. And then the mental formation. So he says, the sankara construct the condition. They construct the conditioned. Ah, so what does that mean? That's a very interesting statement, huh? So again, a simple way of thinking about it is of any kind of volitional thought that you have, let's say you want to bake a cake. That is a construction, both the plan itself and the carrying it out if you put that into action. So Sankara has to do with a construction or a response, you know, um, I hate that thing. And then the sort of subtle implication is I'd like to get away from it, or I'd like it to stop, or I'd like, you know, it to be more pleasant, it to be a different color, whatever it is. So the mental formations are, are that kind of activity of response, reaction, the way that we are actually um, forming ideas about action in the world. That's one way to think about it. But the other interesting sort of more subtle meaning that could be interpreted here, or the, as I interpret it, is that we're, the, these volitional thoughts are also engaging kama. They're engaging the function of kama, right? So whenever we do something with intention, something with body, speech, or mind, it's done with intention, then it creates a karmic energy that will unfold in some kind of vipaka, some kind of karmic response, karmic consequence. So this sankharas are also kind of activating the way that karma is shaping our world. Right? Because karmic consequences actually play out. And a simplistic example of that would be if I go tomorrow and I rob the bank and I get caught on video robbing the bank and then they, there is a karmic consequence that I have set into motion by doing that unwholesome thing, right? Somebody is likely to come knocking on the door and arrest me if they could figure out who I was and where I lived and those kinds of things. And even if they can't, there is still a karmic consequence that, that will unfold out of that, right? So this is literally, in another way, constructing the conditioned world that we live in. So that's, to me, quite interesting, because again, it's also talking about uh, the opportunity for choice to make a difference, or for us to observe how choices have played out. And then consciousness. So consciousness, he says, consciousness, the example he gives is cognizes various kinds of tastes. 
like sour or bitter or pungent or these kinds of things. And this, I, I interpret this to mean a kind of discernment or differentiation. Consciousness is helping us to discern differences between this or that or the other thing. And part of that uh, is, you could say, built into our sense of subject-object, our sense of separation between what we're experiencing and what is between what is doing the experiencing and what is experienced. Yeah. So that subject-object idea that we have is, um, in a sense, it's all about like saying, oh, and I am this thing or I'm not this thing. I'm different from that or I'm the same as that, that person or that thing or that place or that, you know, I like it, I don't like it, it's all, it's, most of what we think is relative to me, right? What do I like? What do I not like? What do I want around me or not want around me? This is the way that the Buddha, Buddha described dukkha, in fact, right? These are some of the ways that dukkha is defined in the suttas, being around what you don't like, not being around what you do like, and so on. So those are the ways that the Buddha talks about the, the sankharas, or, or rather the khandas, and he, he is um, giving us some ideas about what they might mean for us or how we could see them. And ultimately, this, this, uh, he says, when one sees the khandas, so two statements that I want to share with you. One statement is from a different sutta, in, the, in these uh, connected discourses, the, that chapter in the Sanyutta Nikaya, the connected discourses, the Buddha says, without fully knowing the khandas, one cannot awaken. But by fully knowing the khandas, one can awaken. An extremely powerful statement. You need to know. You need to know. And the other statement that he makes is, he says, this, when a practitioner begins to know the khandas, begins to experience them to some degree of detail, um, then they know, oh, I'm being devoured by form. I'm being devoured by feeling tone. I'm being devoured by perception, devoured by volitional thoughts devoured by consciousness. And I think to myself, well, what does that mean exactly? Like, how would I relate to that? And I thought, oh, right. Like, what's eating you? What's eating you is the khandas, is your clinging, your identification to the khandas, right? If you said to somebody, hey, what's eating you? Like, what's bugging you? What's bothering you? What's weighing you down? That's it. You're being devoured by the khandas, by your identification with those things. So he says, ah, then ultimately, knowing that that's what's eating you, so to speak, right? that you would then see, ah, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. Those are the three statements that you begin to see through that sense of identification time and time again by simply seeing 
the way that this mechanism works and the fact that it is ultimately impersonal. It's just, it's just a phenomena, and those phenomena work according to certain uh, ways. They function in a particular way, in a particular order, in a particular relationship to each other, to the world, and that doesn't necessarily require a separate, independently existing self in order to function. It actually doesn't. It does just fine without a self. So for this part of it, I want to talk about this uh, teacher that I don't often mention, but uh, whose teaching I came across recently again. And I really appreciated it. So I'm going to share this with you tonight. And then uh, hopefully, maybe after that, I will stop and we'll do some Q&A. But this is uh, a poem. <laughs> it's a poem called The Ballad. So it's translated by Ajahn Ternissero. And I should say that I don't often use Ajahn Ternissero's translations because of his position about women's ordination, which has uh, been difficult, to put it mildly. But once in a while, I do, because he is a very skilled translator. And so some of his translations are very helpful. So he translated this. It's by Ajahn Mun. Ajahn Mun is a Thai, was a Thai forest master. He, he uh, lived in the late 19th century, early 20th century. And um, he is said to have established the forest tradition. And I would say perhaps established the modern day forest ascetic tradition in Thailand, because goodness knows people have been meditating in the forest in Thailand for quite a long time. But he, he is known uh, for a particular uh, lineage, you could say, within Thai Theravada Buddhism. And it's a lineage that values uh, seclusion and uh, learning from nature, observing nature as a demonstration of Dhamma, as a, a clear way to see the function of Dhamma. And so, in any event, so the, it's a very interesting story. So he didn't, there are very few teachings of his that are saved, and there's one particular little book that was published during his lifetime, but at his death, they found this poem among his personal things. And he said that he'd written it when he was on a trip to Bangkok, probably in the early 1930s, according to Ajahn Tanisaro. And um, there wasn't an, a quote-unquote anonymous poem. There was some poem that was kind of floating around in the monastic, uh, era, in the monastic uh, culture in Bangkok at that time. And he, and he sort of launches off from that and then goes on to add his own understanding and so I'm not going to read you the whole poem because it's pretty long, but I do want to hit some of the highlights here. And so the poem, so he, he starts by paying homage to the Buddha and the nine transcended dhammas means the four stages of awakening and Nibbana and the, or yeah, the path and the fruit of the four stages of awakening plus Nibbana, that's nine. 
and the Sangha. And then he goes on and he starts with this poem that was popular at that time. So once there was a man who loved himself and feared distress. So we could say, and ungender it as I often do, right? There was a person who loved themselves and feared distress, who wanted happiness beyond the reach of danger, so wandered endlessly, sort of pilgrimage, and found a cave of wonders of endless happiness that is the body. And I thought to myself, hmm, not really, huh? That's not how I would describe the body. But um, he goes on and he, he finds this, this uh, beautiful aspect of the body. And then, but he didn't want to talk to people about it. And then there was another man, another person afraid of death, his heart all withered and discouraged and came to me, me meaning the one who had discovered this, cave of wonders, cave of endless happiness, and spoke frankly and asked to stay with me. So there are two people having a conversation here, okay? And it's, and then, so then it becomes, and he says, ah, so what I've discovered is a cave of wonders free from suffering and stress, mindfulness immersed in the body. Mindfulness immersed in the body. You can view it at your leisure to cool your heart. So this is a this is a reference to uh, the practice as a place of refuge, practice of mindfulness of body as a way for us to experience a happiness and a peace and a, a mental ease, which is not dependent necessarily on the body or on external circumstances. The body is there, and the mindfulness of body is sort of, you could say, the, the, the beginning object, but then that shifts into a place which is not, um, not experiencing the body in the way that we typically would of like getting sore on the cushion or having a painful knee or different things that happen. So he talks about mindfulness immersed in the body as this place of refuge, this place of freedom from suffering. Uh, but then that sparks this, this Q&A. It's a, like, a, and he says, I posed him some riddles. So we're going to look at just a couple of these riddles, not the whole thing. So first I asked him, what runs? And he said, so now the he is, now Ajahn Moon is talking about himself. He is the one who has experienced this place. What runs quickly is vijnana, right? So what we just translated as consciousness, or what Ajahn Tanisaro is translating as heart in this uh, poem. So heart or mind, it's all of what we in the Western world would think of as both of those two things. What runs quickly is vijnana, moments walking in a row, one after the other, not doubting that sanyas are correct. The heart gets caught up in running back and forth. Sanyas grab hold, so sanyas are perceptions. Sanyas grab hold of things outside and pull them in to fool the mind. 
they fool it like a mirage. So this, this uh, saying, they fool it like a mirage, is from a different sutta. It's from a sutta also in the Connected Discourses called the Lump of Foam Sutta, which is a very famous description where the Buddha gives similes for each one of the khandhas. But this is quite interesting to me. So something about not doubting our perception is a source of suffering. So, so this is a different kind of doubt than the kind of doubt that we would think of as a hindrance, right? Because doubt is the fifth of the five hindrances, but that's a doubt about one's ability to walk the path usually, or about, whether, about the efficacy of the path. And this kind of doubt is it being framed, I would suggest, as a positive kind of doubt. Right? So it's something like those bumper stickers that are like, don't believe everything you think. Right? <laughs> That's how I see this. Ajahn Moon is saying, don't believe your perceptions. You should hold them lightly. You should hold them with some degree of question. Right? You should not be attached to the fact that this color is cinnamon or that color is red, or, right? or various other things that we, sh that we should understand, perhaps that we should understand our perceptions of the world as equally conditioned, as equally um, colored by all sorts of things, right? Memories, past experience, how our bodies work, where our bodies happen to be in that moment, desires, future plans, any number of things are coloring the way that we perceive the world. And so he's saying, oh, not when we don't doubt that the perceptions are correct, then the heart gets caught up, or the chitta, or the vijnana, or the consciousness, um, or mind gets caught up in running back and forth, grabbing hold of things and pulling them in. So this sense of like the mind, that we have this sense again of this kind of subject object thing happening, right? And I go out and I grab that thing. The mind like a little octopus with all these little sticky tentacles and it goes out and it grabs whatever thing it likes and says, oh, I know what this is. And that's the other thing about perceptions, that perceptions are, uh, by definition, perceptions are a little bit illusory. But instead of that, we think that the world actually is the way we think the world is. You know what I'm saying? So, um, I'll give you a very quick example of this. Uh, oh, no, I won't because it's a longer story and we're almost at the end of our time for the talk. So um, just to say, there is um, yeah, there is an assumption that our concept captures reality. Let's put it that way. We live with that assumption that our concepts are fully capturing reality. And this is saying, basically, question that. 
And so he goes on a bit uh, about that and about um, how to practice a little bit with that. And then he comes to this part, and then I am going to tell you a brief story, and then I'm going to stop for Q&A. He starts to talk about what it's like when we have fully penetrated the truth of the khandas. The end of desire, this is him now, the end of desire, abandoning doubt, so the other kind of doubt, right? Clean, the sanyas, the perceptions, settle out and the sankharas don't disturb it. The heart is thus brimming with nothing lacking. So he's not saying that sanyas go away, right? He's not saying that perception goes away or that sankharas necessarily go away, but rather that those things aren't the drivers of our experience, aren't the thing that's in our focus. Right? They settle out. They don't disturb. What? What are they settling out so that we can see or don't disturb? They're not disturbing the mind, the clarity of mind. And the clarity of mind as also a conditioned and temporary fleeting phenomena. So I'll tell you a little story about this, about how the sanyas settle out or how that might be the case. And he says, and, and it's a story that um, I can tell very briefly. So I was training in Japan and Shodo-san, so san just means my friend, it's kind of like bante is used in Theravada. It means sort of like that, like sir or ma'am. I mean, they would call me Konin-san in Zen. Shodo-san was the head of the garden, and he had asked me to pick some chamomile flowers off of this German chamomile bush, which has like about a thousand little tiny flowers. I'm not exaggerating here, like, you know, hundreds of little tiny, tiny, tiny flowers on it. This big, you know, bush, maybe three feet tall. And it's to make tea for our teacher, Arada Roshi. And at some point I sort of was like, well, I'm not sure which ones I should be picking. Like, should I pick the ones that are, that is it okay to pick the buds or only the ones that are fully open? Or what about if they've lost some of their petals? Or is that too late? Or, you know, what should I do? So I turned to Shodo-san and I said, Shodo-san, um, not really sure about this picking, which flowers should I be picking or, you know, like, is it? And so I, you know, rattled off exactly those, something like those examples that I just presented. And Shodasan looked at me, the scowl, and said, are you asking me when a flower becomes a flower? <laughs> like that, because he's German. <laughs> and he's Zen. So anyway, so I thought about it for a second, and I, thought, I said, well, yeah, maybe. Maybe that's what I'm asking you. And he looked at me again with that scowl, and he just shook his head, and he wouldn't answer the question. He just refused to answer the question. And on reflection, then I realized that that's what Shodosan was pointing to, right? That I didn't need a sankara about picking chamomile flowers. I could just pick them. I could just know which one was a flower and pick it. 
And I didn't need a whole sankara around that. I could just perceive flower and pick it. That would be that. You know? So when that way is clear, then as Ajahn Mun says to us, the heart is thus brimming with nothing lacking. That is that we experience the fullness, the completeness of the moment. We experience the completeness of things just as they are. Not going out and looking for anything else, just knowing that fullness and that completeness. So I am going to stop there, as I said I would, um, and just say that, as I said earlier, I think that um, practicing with the khandas is a very uh, useful endeavor, something that has a great deal of nuance to it, a lot of shades of meaning, but also I think a very, very clear, very, very clear instruction, right? That you can, right here, right now, in these bodies and minds, we can see very clearly the workings the workings of reality. We can come to know that completeness, that fullness for ourselves. We can come to know the flowers in our lives. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.